Hey folks, welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Joseph DiBiase and this is my podcast. Welcome to Pivot Point, everybody. It is the first episode of 2021. Doesn't it just sound better, 2021? It does to me. Putting that other year behind me, that that's a good thing. I hope you had a great New Year's. I hope it was safe. I hope everything was fun and fine. Ours was good. And uh, glad to be moving forward. Now, you know, I've said in the past that you can reach out should you have any questions, right? And we can talk about them on the program here. And as you can imagine, I have a list of people that I want to have on the show this year for 2021. But if you're interested in a particular area of the arts, let me know. Again, hit me up at pivotpoint at jsdibiase.com, pivotpoint at jsdibiase.com. I'd love to hear from you, love to hear what you're interested in, and we'll go there. So, quick update on this project that I was talking to you about. So, we're getting close. We're about to enter into our dubbing time, you know, that mix. And... um we're still doing picture changes. We are a, less than a week away. So next Monday, this coming Monday, actually, is when we start on the dub stage. And uh, picture changes are afoot, as well as no score. So <laughs> those of you who have been down this path before know exactly what I'm talking about. It's going to be an interesting two weeks. <laughs> All right, on the show today is David Seltzer. I got to tell you that I am thrilled to be able to have David on the show. David and I first got to meet each other years ago while working on the movie that he wrote and directed called Shining Through. And we worked on that film for months and had late hours and you know how it is when you're working with somebody and you work with them in the trenches, you know, you get to know somebody. And I believe that we had very similar sensibilities in storytelling. And I think that's partly why we got along well and we had a lot of fun. Um, and that movie went through some trying times getting it finished. And David will tell you some more about that. But you know when you get really close with somebody and then when the film gets done, people tend to just go their own direction. And that's what happens a lot of times. And that happened with David and I, and we would get together every now and again, or somehow our paths would cross. And there would always be that, that connection. It's like you pick up where you left off. And I'm very grateful for that. And I think you'll hear in today's interview it happened again, and uh, it it just is wonderful. He's a wonderful man, and I'm I'm really blessed to have him as a friend, and I'm so grateful we got to work together. So, here you go, David Seltzer and I talking it up. <laughs> 
Oh, Joe. Oh, Joe. So good to see you, my friend. Oh, my God. Same here. Same here. Wow. Long time, but I feel like I see you all the time (laughs) because of the Facebook stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to get myself a drink of water. Okay. No worries. This is amazing. This actually worked. Yeah. Loving your background, dude. Oh, thank you. Fantastic. Hold on. Okay. So... You guys are good in isolation. You love birds? Yes, yes, we are doing well. It uh, It's getting a little long on the tooth for the both of us, you know. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, we're fortunate. We have a little bit of a yard and we take walks. So, and we do this, you know, we've, we Zoom with family and friends and that helps a whole lot. That's great. Yeah. I got to start doing that too. I've got to start doing it with my kids and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. They're all over, aren't they? Um, They are. They are San Francisco, Baltimore, and um, where else? Boston. Mm -hmm. I've got one daughter here. Okay. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, tell me, um, you know, it's funny. I've been looking over some of your stuff. Like, there's some things I didn't know that you you wrote on and that you did. It's amazing to me. But before we get into all of that, I'd love to know. Like, take me back to the beginning. Like, where where were you born? And how how was your family dynamic? What was that What was that like for you growing up? Um. Well, if you see the omen, I'm dating. <laughs> <laughs> It was autobiographical. <laughs> At least my parents thought so. <laughs> oh my God. Um, well, I didn't expect that. <laughs> well, that answers the question of what wasn't the inspiration for the human? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you got it. Okay, we can we can move on from that. Um, very um, traditional in terms of old country traditional uh-huh. uh, very conservative jewish family some of them from poland and from russia <clears throat> my parents met here when they were children mm-hmm. uh, because all of the jews escaping germany and poland and russia wound up in american shtetls that is they lived separately they were very much afraid of the world mm. outside um, that is to say, people persecuting Jews. I remember you said you don't mind going on diversionary trips. Yeah, yeah. I remember being a little kid. We were driving with my father through Chicago. And um, if you look at my Facebook, you'll see I've always been crazy about animals. I rehabilitate animals. And all yeah. That. And I had that even as a kid. And we were pulling in somewhere for the night, we thought, on a road trip in Wisconsin. And there was a sign we saw posted. My father saw posted. He threw it into reverse, racing backwards down this dirt road. It was to a hotel or motel. And I said, what is it? What's wrong? He said, you see that sign? No Jews or dogs. And we kept driving and I'm mulling it over in the back seat. And I said, geez, what the dogs ever do? Oh my God. It's not fair to dogs. <laughs> That's horrible. Anyway, the whole thing is horrible. Holy the shit. Is, the whole thing is horrible. Uh, but at any rate, I was, um, I was an ill fit in, in a family of people who, whose mm. children became a part of the professions. They were doctors or they were lawyers. Or mm. They were at the very least going to be accountants. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I, I had uh, dyslexia as a kid. I couldn't accomplish anything in school. It's still, it's no longer a problem, but it's, it's, yeah. an, it's something I live with that I, people think I must be a highly educated, literate, well-read man. I'm not. I've read five books in my whole life, but <clears throat> I am okay mm. reading factual material. Fictional material is really hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but my aptitude tests in high school uh, where everybody else's kids were getting, oh, he'll be a great doctor, he'll be a great lawyer. He'll be. Yeah. I was a forest ranger, and it was humiliating to my family. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that was the profession they picked out for their nice little Jewish boy. Oh, and, well, and, now, were you in the middle? Were you the oldest? Which I was, I was the middle. Okay. I had a brother who was very obviously everyone's dream kid, um, and I had a younger sister, and I was in the middle. And um, I was a singing, dancing little boy. You know, I saw, I saw a movie early on. I think it was, it was some Gene Kelly movie or something. Uh-huh. And um, my father nailed me right away, calling me a sissy, which meant fairy, which meant homosexual, which I'm not. Although that would be okay too. Yeah. But in those days, I yeah. was, I was definitely. And unfavored in the family. That's why I say the omen is I was getting <laughs> Wow, David, I didn't know any of this about you. So the, yeah, your life must have been pretty, growing up must have been tough, trying to fit in. Yeah, it was, it was I did not have a happy childhood. I was the unfavored son. And um, I have come to, you know, I'm an old man now. And I never thought that in as an octogenarian, I'd still be crying in my beard about my yeah. father. Yeah. I mean, it's just unfucking crying into a gray beard about my father. Yeah. Um, and not that I do all day or that I even do frequently, but I carry it with me mm-hmm. and needed to accomplish a great deal to try and get his approval, his attention. Um, so, so that's where I come from. I honestly think if all parents had a talent for making their children feel loved, mm. there would be no such thing as show business. Oh, wow. Nobody would need the applause. Yeah. Uh, the affirmation, the, you know, would need to bask in public yeah. uh, admiration. I, I think most people, you know, I did, uh, Lucas was a little film of mine. And um, as you well know, and he was a, kind of an outcast in school. Um, and he was the nerd. Uh-huh. And... Um, unappreciated and so many people who I met in our business subsequently mm. confided to me I am Lucas wow. I was Lucas so many people sitting behind the, from the executive desks mm-hmm. particularly in the executive ranks and so many of us started out wanting to be actors because that was the first thing we could identify mm. that people would admire you know, that would draw the, you know, the right kind of attention on the street. Um, but at any rate, so, but, you know, um, pain as well as I've learned joy mm-hmm. can be the source of inspiration. Mm-hmm. And as a kid, I was, I mean, the, the omen was a, a complete anomaly. I was writing things, sad things, soppy mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. I was really criticized for it um, about 
you know, like the other side of the mountain and mm -hmm. very sensitive pictures about crippled people and unfortunate people. And uh, as I say, the omen was it was an oddity that came my way that I didn't even want to do. Oh, really? But once I started researching it, I became fascinated with it. But at any rate, um, certainly not... Uh, Certainly not a deprived childhood. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a middle-class family. I was sent to college and mm -hmm. all that stuff. I'm not going to compare myself to kids who really have had a miserably deprived yeah. upbringing. Yeah. I didn't. But I didn't feel particularly valued. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And felt that, um, and, you know, went to, went to college, mm -hmm. couldn't accomplish anything, never really graduated, although I was performing in all the shows. And I was given the opportunity to march in graduation with everybody. Wow. So my parents wouldn't be mortified after having, after having driven out from Florida. But there were no such things as film schools. I'm yeah. 81. Yeah. Back in those days, in the late 50s, nobody sent their kid to a film school. Mm -hmm. But there was a film class. And because I couldn't read, I could see films. Sure. And I could appreciate this stuff. I was in the theater department. I was doing fine as a singing, dancing boy in the college musicals and all that stuff. So, and I was, by the way, they were happy years for me, college. Yeah. I was, I was um, because I did something special mm -hmm. in college that is wanting to be a performer. Um, and I did it well. Mm -hmm. I got a lot of the kind of attention that made me feel worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I also saw films and I saw I mean, it was so moving to me that it still is at the time. Um, the films of Francois Truffaut, mm -hmm. just little um, black and white films that were very narrative and about people. And I came out wanting to make films. I had to make a living. Um, and clearly I couldn't become a filmmaker right. right away in those days. I mean, not even... I mean, now the way kids can become directors online and actors, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm from another age altogether. I went to New York and figured that I would work either in the advertising business or the music business or the television business. And I happened to luck into a job with the Goodson Todman Company as, you know, a runner, basically. They uh -huh. had all these game shows, live game shows. And one, um, one producer in particular liked me. The, the show was called I've Got a Secret, starring Gary Moore. And he put me on the show, and I became a writer on the show. Those shows actually were written. If you remember the show, mm. a guest comes out, whispers in Gary Moore's ear, and then there's a panel of people who guess what. Who that you know, person, yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah, what it is. Um, there's a story that shames me. Uh, because it shows how self-centered I was, um, in uh, how hungry I was for success yeah. in those days. Uh -huh. But I made a name for myself because among the secrets, I realized that the president every year pardons a turkey on Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. so this is my little mind working. And I thought, you blindfold the guests, which they do with celebrities. Um, a celebrity would come out and disguise their voice, and, uh, the, and the panel it was Bess Meyerson, Betsy Palmer, Henry Morgan, Bill Cullen, all those great old people, would start their guessing game. So mine is, blindfolded panel, bring out a turkey. 
And the turkey's secret is the president saved my life because they would spare the turkey. Uh Yeah. So word traveled through the organization that this kid came up with this amazing idea. Oh, my gosh. Suddenly I was famous. Uh And one day I was walking down the halls and it was it was the week before Thanksgiving and Monday was coming up. It was a live show. And somebody ran down the hall screaming, the president has been assassinated. And I thought, my turkey spot. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> well, wouldn't we all? That is like, you know, we're young. Oh, no. Why me? Why me? Yeah. Well, but, you know, I get it. I get it. When we're young and we're trying to make a name for ourselves, especially when we have that that sense of desperation, that's going to be the first thought, <laughs> you know, and then you President's go, President's guilt, what about my turkey what spot? What about my turkey spot? <laughs> so let me ask you, though, what was the inspiration to write? Like, because you were dyslexic, you know, why not continue singing and dancing? Which is fascinating, too. I didn't know you sang and danced. So... Um, well, writing was something I always did. Mm. I really didn't know one could be a writer. Um, but I did it. And, and, uh, I, I don't want this to, I don't want this to sound like a pity party, but I was an unhappy kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, the things I would write at night were made up conversations between my mother and father, wherein my father was praising mm. to my mother. It was my way of just imagining, you know, creating an imaginary world. Yeah. But I was writing. I was being a writer. Okay. Um, which I didn't realize until much later. And these little scenarios would grow. Yeah. But I never thought about writing movies until um, I became very restless doing the I've Got a Secret show. Mm-hmm. I was an animal freak, um, had a house full of animals. I rehabilitate wild animals now, by the way. Yeah. Well, I see and, all the um, time with squirrels. Like, I'm like... Like they're domesticated. I'm like, how does he do that? <laughs> people bring them to me. I'm on a short list of people in uh, on the west side of California, where if somebody brings an animal they find that's orphaned, ill, or injured, to if they call the sheriff, if they go to a vet, if they go to a pet shop, if they go to a shelter, I'm on a list of people they call. My favorite things, of course, are the cuddliest right. things, and, and those are squirrels and. And rabbits and possums, which I have a... Nobody likes possums. I think they're amazing. Oh, man. But at any rate, David Wolper, the filmmaker, I read in The Hollywood Reporter. I had been on the I've Got a Secret show for maybe three, four years and was really tired of it. And it wasn't satisfying me creatively. Mm-hmm. And I read that David Wolper was doing a series on animals. Oh, there you go. And um, so I called up. I faked a resume. I said I was a producer and writer for CBS, which I wasn't, <laughs> and that I had been a, the assistant curator of the reptile house at the Lincoln Park Zoo, oh which gosh. I never was. There's that creativity happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So they had one of their executives who came out, and the instant he said later, the instant I saw you, I knew you were the guy. I said, why? He said, you had animal hair all over your jacket. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Who needs a resume? <laughs> so I went out to, uh, I went to California instantly mm-hmm. and started working on the animal shows. And I quickly climbed the ranks from an assistant to an associate producer, to a producer, to a producer writer. Mm-hmm. And I did a 
bunch of uh, documentaries. I worked uh, also um, for Jacques Cousteau. I also traveled throughout Africa. What? Um, I really, it was really quite, quite an amazing time. But I realized, I mean, there was absolutely no, you know, there was, there was no money in it. I had two kids and I wasn't making much of a living. Um, as a producer? Well, as a, yeah, even, even as, as a producer. And I got ahead of myself a little bit. Before, before that time, before that happened, I jumped ahead of myself. Um, I did, while I was happily doing documentaries, mm -hmm. which I loved doing because I learned something every damn day of my life. Yeah, yeah. I could bore the pants off anybody about how seals mate in the Arctic or whatever the hell it was. Um, I did political documentaries. I worked, uh, did raw footage for Bobby Kennedy. Wow, At the man. time he was killed and the Kennedys became part of my life what? and helped me when I went to Vietnam as a, as a, with a camera, with a documentary camera to adopt a child. It was the Kennedys were a big part of my life because I worked for Bobby for two seconds wow. uh, while he was on the campaign trail. I'm jumping around on you, Joseph. No, you that's fine. This is all, this is good. This okay. is very fascinating. Um, I did a documentary called um, the Hellstrom Chronicle. And um, where my college roommate, Larry Pressman, played the role of a fake entomologist, a fake um, ichthyologist, entomologist, scientist, who had a theory that we were polluting the planet at, planet at such a rate that one day the insects would inherit the earth. And he was all about insects. And it won an Academy Award, it won the Palme d'Or at Cannes. And... Um, but importantly, I had made somebody talk on the screen. Mm. I had written lines for somebody on the screen. Yeah. He was seen throughout talking. And David Wolper at that time and Mel Stewart wanted to get out of documentaries. They optioned Roald Dahl's book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Roald Dahl was writing the screenplay. Um, and they went off to make this their maiden voyage into the theatrical world. And they mm. had a big golden ticket, as it were, in having gotten Roald Dahl to do his first movie. Yeah. Roald Dahl, as it turns out, was a famous rageaholic, a really emotionally disturbed person. Oh, wow. And they were already filming the musical numbers written by Leslie Brickus and Anthony Newley um, in Germany when Roald Dahl showed up with 14 pages that he said was the screenplay. Um, <laughs> and when they explained to him that that was not a screenplay, he said, I've put arrows in it of what pages in the book to go to. And when they said, that's not sufficient, we paid you a lot of money for this, he threw a fit. He threw the 14 pages at them and walked out. Oh, my gosh. They couldn't admit to the world that they had lost Roald Dahl because that was their ticket into yes, Hollywood. sure. They said, hey, that kid who's telling everybody he's a writer, Seltzer, call him. And they called me and they said, can you really write a screenplay? Because I was telling everybody at that point, because when I wrote words on screen, uh -huh. I realized that's when I was, I realized people can get rich doing this. Mm. And so I started telling people I was a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. So Stuart and Walper go into the film business, lose their writer and call me to go to Germany. I said, okay, here's the deal. If you, if you can really do this 
and you have to promise us you can really do this. I'd never written a screenplay. I said, oh, I promise you, I can do this. Were you not nervous? Uh, no, I was, const- I was accustomed to bullshitting. Okay. To bullshitting my way in and out of offices. I usually was able to really charm assistants, who we called secretaries in those days, who were always women. Uh-huh. Uh, I couldn't do anything any, any better than anybody else, but I knew I could get to first base, to second base. Um, so I was accustomed to BSing my way into things. I'd BSing, I bullshitted my way into the job of doing documentaries. So he said, I can do that. And they said, okay, here's the deal. Come out here. You write this screenplay for us. You're not going to fly first class. You're going to fly coach. You're not going to be put up in a first class hotel. You're going to be put up, put up in a dump. But here's the deal. And you're not going to get screen credit. Oh, my gosh. So, oh, what a great deal. This deal is yeah. selling better all the time. But I get to write a screenplay. They say, yeah, and we will produce your first movie, which they later did. <clears throat> to this day, everybody knows I wrote, uh, Willie, I was the primary writer on Willy Wonka, even though I'm not on the screen. Right. Um, but anyway, in an important way, I'm credited with it. Yeah, I hear you. Um, so I went to Germany and, um, and I did Willy Wonka. It was an amazing experience. I bet. Um, because nobody knew how to make a movie except Gene Wilder. He was the only one, really, mm. who had any traction in that world. But he and I became fast friends. He was a good advisor. He liked what I was doing. He loved what I was doing. Oh, that's fabulous. Um, it was very unscreenplay-like. It had no structure. Uh-huh. It was just and then, and then, and then, very episodic, which is part of the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. But Gene and I decided we were going to keep throwing in Shakespeare quotes and poets quotes and Shelley and, and uh, O'Shaughnessy. And, I, and so, so many of the things people remember. I just got a, a fan letter yesterday, somebody wanting to know who wrote, we are the makers of music and we are the dreamers of dreams. Mm. And that was an Irish poet whose name was Arthur O'Shaughnessy. So Gene loved that part of it. Gene was a, a real intellect. Um, so there was Willy Wonka and Willy Wonka led to, I think I did a movie called the other side of the mountain after Mm. that, that was the one. And um, I think after that, I got a call from one of the Walper guys who said, David, did you see the exorcist? And I said, yeah. He said, I want one of those. And I said, about the devil. He said, about the devil. (laughs) He said, you think there can only be one? I said, I don't think I can do that. Yeah. I don't know anything about that. Part of my ethic when I went into movie making of fictional stories was, is to only do things I learned from, because as a documentarian, I learned something yeah. new with that sure. project. And I thought, what can I learn about the devil? There is no such thing. I'm from a fundamentalist Jewish family who would uh, tui tui yeah. if I did something about the devil. But also, there was no devil in terms of the Jewish religion. Yeah. But I realized I'd never cracked a Bible. I started reading the Bible. Uh, to this day, I read the Bible. I fell in love with the mythology, with the characters, mm. with the characters' arc, with the impossible preposterousness of these stories. And I learned how the Bible was built. Mm. There was no mass reproduction of pages of writing. And when they talk about the scholars studying the Bible, those scholars were copying the Bible. Mm -hmm. And over the generations, because they made more copies available. Mm 
over the generations. They added their own bullshit to it. They added their own stories to it. Mm -hmm. So these stories grew and grew and grew. And I realized that you can straight face your way through a preposterous story. I had just seen uh, Jaws. Yeah. Everybody knows fish don't eat boats. The audience was horrified at the end. The fish was eating a boat. Yep. So, yeah, there can be a devil. What the hell? So I started researching, which you had to do book reading. Mm -hmm. I cut out pages, hang them on strings in my apartment because I have no capacity to file things properly. I still don't. You should see my desktop on my computer. You know, it looks yeah. like the... The, the chalkboard in a beautiful mind is yeah. crazy. Um, but at any rate, I found, uh, had a lot of interpretive texts. Mm. One of them said that the beast, that being the unholy one, that being the, the child of the devil, the antichrist will rise from the eternal sea. Look in all of my interpretive texts. And there was a rabbi who wrote the eternal sea in the Bible of blah, 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 means the world of revolution, of turmoil, of politics. Okay, the devil's child rises in the world of politics. Mm. Mm, that, that'll work. Mm -hmm. And then I'm reading, 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 and I find in Revelation, let the number of the human beast be a human number. Its number is 666. I turn that into a calendar that date, basically. The film was nice. released on June 6, 1976. That's great. The calendar date in the movie was June 6 at 6 a.m. when the Antichrist was born. And suddenly creativity flourished. I've really? never again, I didn't do a sequel. Mm -hmm. I had nothing new to learn. I didn't know people got rich doing that. This was before the day of doing sequels. Mm. Um, I, I basically gave the franchise away. Um, and and the movies weren't very good after that, frankly. Because, yeah, no, they weren't. Because the secret of the secret of it was an innocent villain, and I did relate to that child. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I can see. It was born with the mantle of evil on him that he never wanted, but people saw it on him, and his actions resulted in. Of course, I took it a step way, way beyond the little Jewish boy in Chicago. Right. Yeah. But but when his parents real had a conversation there's something wrong with our child Oof. i related to that oh my gosh so at any rate but i did I, I mean the movie was absolutely um it, it came from heaven yeah <laughs> or, or from hell yeah um, but of course to this day it's it's what i remembered for you know it's interesting when we go into creativity like I, I, people often wonder, where does it come from? And uh, I, I remember talking to um, a composer friend, Catherine Bostick, and she's talking about writing music. And she said, it's like a divine, how does she put it? Divine transcription. Like it just kind of happens and she just writes it down. And I get it. And I remember working on Shining Through. I'll never forget this, that Michael Kamen said, I just have to find the notes. And I, I can relate to that. It's like you hear it, but I got to find those. And is writing words the same for you? That there's this, I mean, I breathe, right? It's like, it's like a breath of life. And then you, you put words down. Is it, how is that processed? I think it's very, it's very similar, very similar. I think there's a lot of, of 
what musicians do that's the same that writers do because you're no fucking good if you can't improv it differently every time you know mm-hmm. if you're a jazz musician um yes i search i search for the voices i search for the people i search to find to find that moment when i know i'm dealing with a human being mm-hmm. and that moment is when they surprise me and say something i didn't expect them to say so that's very nice. much sort of yeah I'd say very much. It's definitely has a kinship to what you're saying. Yeah. It's out there. When they promise in my head to be a certain kind of person and and then they betray that promise, I think, ah, I found him. I found him. I found the real guy. Yeah. And then I can go with that character. Um, because let's face it, human beings disappoint us. Yeah. I promise to, to you know, love you f- forever. Um, for now, (laughs) I hate you if ever for now, Yeah, you know, I will always do this for now. I will never do that for now. Mm. So I think, you know, you're dealing with a human being and I can, by the way, face disappointments in life. I think, because I understand that is human nature. Mm. They will present what they want you to see, but they can't help being who they are. Sometimes otherwise. Yeah. I mean, I, pride myself on my forgiveness mm. mostly you know it doesn't doesn't work 100 percent of the time but sure but i'm the first one to say let them off you know let them off the hook yeah you know, people people make mistakes yeah um but it, it is the same there is a there is a zone um that i can find where everybody is saying things that surprise me i didn't plan it mm. Mm-hmm. I didn't plan what one person said, what another person said. And then I go through a whole period with something that I write where I take away what they said and let silence do it. And I can, I can have a very superficial, without going into some exposition, that an audience will sense. When I'm working at my best, I can do just plain dialogue, but you sense so much going on under it. Under mm. it. And, I, and I think actors like my work. Yeah, or have liked my work in the past because I'm not telling them too much about what to do and mm-hmm. how to feel, mm-hmm. and that's that's something that's always up for conversation. Yeah, there's a picture today is uh, Corey Haim's birthday. He's past you, as you know. He was Lucas, and there's a picture, favorite picture that I have of him and me in deep conversation, and I remember what we were talking about. He was a kid; he was 12 years old, and what the difference would be. What he would do on screen, if it wasn't right, I would, I would talk to him. I'd say, I don't want you to change anything. Mm. What you're doing is just fine. But listen to what I have to say about the character. This is what I have to say about the person. The camera will read your mind. You mm. don't have to do a damn thing different. But guess what? Whatever he was doing differently as a result of talking to me, he didn't try to change it, try to emphasize right. a word, try this. It, 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 would, it would all change. We were having a conversation at that moment, and it makes me giggle. This is, not a, this is just a picture that I have of the two of us in series. Does a nerd know he's a nerd? <laughs> <laughs> because that would make a difference. Yeah. Does a nerd think he's just like everybody else, or he's better than like everybody else, or he's ashamed because he's not like everybody else? Mm. Is he oblivious to the fact that they all think he's a nerd? And it made a difference to the character of Lucas. And he maintained, Lucas doesn't know he's a nerd. I said, fair enough. Uh-huh. That's great. <laughs> fair enough. Take on the big guy. Yeah. Which he did. Yeah. Which he did. Well, how wonderful yeah. to get into those type of conversations. 
Yeah. You know, that's like, uh, uh, gosh, there's so much in my mind right now. Okay. Let me go back just, let me go back just a second here. We were talking about characters and how they, humans disappoint you. And it made me think about this year. And many times throughout the year, I kept on saying, I just don't understand people. I don't understand how they are responding to, say, our political situation and multiple situations within that, if it was racism or just the lies that were happening. And I kept on saying, what's happening or what's happened to our humanity? And... Kristen would lovingly just say, this is our humanity. And that kind of, well, not kind of, it, it, it blew me away a little bit to go, that's right. We have everything within us to be the best person in the world or the worst person in the world. And that, that's something that like for me, cause I've been studying acting now for what, 10 years. And it's like that empathy, that part of who we are as humans, that's what you want to see on screen. That's what it goes back to what you're talking about. It, does he know he's a nerd? Does he not know he's a nerd? Who is he as a human being? Well, it takes me to a couple of places and that's a very profound answer she gave you. Um, I'm a huge fan of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I don't believe, I don't need to believe anything about who was his father, mm-hmm. any, any kind of shit like that. Uh, because I know <laughs> if we're to believe in God, we see a wrathful God. Mm-hmm. And Jesus was all about love. Yeah. The kid, the kid went into a different business. <laughs> <laughs> Hung up a different shingle. But, you know, when he said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They were beasts. They mm-hmm. were racists. Mm-hmm. They were haters. Um, it's up to the few of us who can forgive to save the rest. Mm. And, and, and I think Kristen is right. Mm-hmm. It is their humanity. It is their, you know, there's something about the human animal that is badly wired. Let's face it. Yeah. Uh, subject to corruption like no other. Yeah. Um, but where you can forgive, you know, but I'm still amazed at these mothers who lose their children and forgive their children's killers. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I can't go that far. Um, and I can't go, I can't forgive the Republicans for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Because is it genocide? Is it, is it, is it that lust that's yeah. within them? If they all die, we'll be more important. We'll have what's theirs, more for me. Yeah. I don't know. It's a good question to ask what's wrong with humanity and the answer is this is our humanity. Yeah. Deeply, deeply, deeply complex. And, you know, uh, someone once said to me, and I carried the question, um, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Mm. Jesus cried on the cross. Now, he was in on the game. Mm. But presumably, why hast thou forsaken me? How did it end like this? And I was told by a very wise person whose business was theology that Jesus was a man, therefore not his to know. Mm. Men can't know these profound things. So you and I will ask to the end of our days, how could 
yeah. people being so cruel. It's yeah. not given for us to know. Certainly in matters of retaliation, when we have the upper hand, mm-hmm. forgiveness is very important. Mm-hmm. But not while they have the upper hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really hard to know when to deal with a bully. You know, I, I, things I learned back when I was just in elementary school, that a bully, the only way you can deal with a bully is you got to fight the bully. And then the bully doesn't become a bully anymore. That's right. Um, and as an adult, we don't fight in the schoolyard. You know, what we do is we use our words and our leverage and our power and we fight in a different way, and now it becomes people's lives. It becomes their well-being. It becomes whether they can actually eat or have a place to live. And uh, it's just, it's hard. I, I wrestle so much about forgiveness, loving, or do I need to go, quote, fight the bully? Do you know what I mean? Like, where. Where do you push up against this stuff? And, uh, and I just do the best I can because there's no real answer. Well, I think finally there is, a, there is an us and there is a them. Yeah. And it's a, it's, it's a terrible thing to say, but I think they're beyond rehabilitation. Mm. They've done too much evil. Yeah. The, it's, how, do, how do they go home? How do they face their families? How do they look at their children? How do they justify their... It's a slippery slope. You know, uh, there are some things in my life I'm not really like proud about. Um, I haven't killed anybody or anything like that, but I've seen how easy it was for me to do some things that I wish I didn't do. And, um, and it really, it just took me like by surprise that I was capable of such things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, that was a huge awareness wake up within my being that, guess what? I am responsible for everything I say, do, and think. And that's been my, my uh, as I live my life now, that's how I, I'm always checking in, <laughs> you know, how am I? How am I, what, where's my head thinking? Because, you know, going back to Jesus, and I just had this conversation with somebody the other day. Oh, heck, (laughs) it was with my daughter and her husband. It was yesterday. um, The greatest commandment, right? Love, love God with all your heart and love everybody. Love your neighbor as you would love yourself. These are the greatest commandments of all the commandments. I mean, that was like the parting goodbye. And as I go, love, love is the answer. And I, I really take that to heart that uh, I you know, try to love first. But at the same time, when you're in with a bully, bully just thinks you're weak and I'm going to take you out. And that's the unfortunate thing where it's like how to know, oh, this is a bully. I, you know, I got to get get the armor and get the sheath and here we go, you know. So um, let me say this is really, really important stuff. It's, it's at the essence also of creativity. Mm-hmm. You, you as an actor 
know that you have more to give if you understand that even you, who knows that love is, who has come to embrace your mistakes, uh, your misdeeds, how could I have done that? How could I have done that? This not only informs you as a man, but what you want to bring to others as an actor. Mm-hmm. I found it to be a, a deep study of self mm-hmm. and humanity mm-hmm. because it's, a, it's empathy. Whatever, wh- whoever you're writing, that's a human being. And that has to then become in me, that human being. Right, right. Full. Yeah. Absolutely full. Yeah. Um, I just got off the phone today. This is a day of great phone calls. I bet. <laughs> with someone I knew in Vietnam. I went to Vietnam mm-hmm. um, because I felt as a writer, it was important for me to see the worst. Mm. The great writers, all went to war, the writers I cared about, Mm -hmm. um, and had something to write about man's inhumanity. And in many ways, uh, it, 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 it was terrible. What I saw was terrible. I was working for the Kennedys and I wanted to go to Vietnam and, um, I wanted to write something about it. And I had an opportunity to because there was some short story that I could follow. But at any rate, I wanted to go there to research it. And uh, Ted Kennedy um, encouraged me mm-hmm. um, and encouraged me as, as, a, um, as a good Samaritan to travel as widely as I could during the war. Because the rumors were that there were hundreds of thousands of half-American children there after 12 years of war. And there was presently no provision for a GI to bring home his common-law Vietnamese wife and their children. So, so he, he paved the way for me there. Mm. And, um, and, and, and I uh, saw unspeakable things and felt compelled to take a couple of kids out. I couldn't leave there. Mm without. They weren't babies. One was five when I met her, the other was seven. They were kids who would never have survived an occupation. Mm. She was um, she was very physically handicapped. He was emotionally, I would say starved was his handicap. He lived under a car. She was quadriplegic and not treated for it. Mm. Um, there was no question in my mind that I was being given an opportunity when I saw them, both of them. I say this not in praise of myself because many people did many heroic things, but I was even at a young age, young being in my late 20s, 1974, early 30s, I knew that I was being, that I was seeing an opportunity for Mm. not just to save a person, but for me to mm. realize the fullness of what a person can be. Um, so at any rate, going to Vietnam informed my life on so many levels. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because I witnessed firsthand something inhuman. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself when I was there, in one particularly horrible situation, it felt terrible to be helpless, by the way. That's, that was the awful thing. I thought, oh, I get it. No, God. Mm. There's your answer. There's your answer. I, I pray to God all the time, by the way. Mm-hmm. I've since begged his, uh, I've apologized. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to pray to somebody. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh-huh. <laughs> Wherever you are, whatever you are, that made this life with all of its joy and all of its misery. Please listen to me because I can use a big, big favor. Yeah. Um, so who knows what, what there is up there. But the question of what is humanity, what is divinity? Obviously, the divine is within all of us. Yeah. Uh, we created that impossible story named the Bible, just like I created that impossible story called the Omen. Mm. And so we have the capacity, whatever we can imagine, man has done mm-hmm. mm. and uh so the power of our imagination is what creates us yeah what dominates us it gives us the fuel to for other lives around us mm-hmm. so i mean this is a question that goes on forever i yeah. I, I used to laugh at at hearing serious conversations like this when i was young and stupid I would think, oh, yeah, well, I gave up talking about that in college, you know. <laughs> right, right. Well, I guess we're always in college. Well, we, yeah. Well, I will die with a big question mark. Maybe it will be answered. Maybe it will not. How we could have done this to each other if, in fact, there is a God. Is mm-hmm. he out to lunch? What? Right. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. I, everything is an opinion. and we all have opinions and we all have thoughts based on our experiences and to think that there is no God, no anything. I, I I can't really embrace that uh, because I know there's something bigger than myself, something within my own spirit, because I know that this flesh of mine, this bodysuit, it's, you know, the parts wearing out, right? And, but I know that somehow I still, I'm still living on. And I'm, I'm thinking about like, think about Craig, Craig McKay's story about, you know, when he had that um, near death experience and what he experienced and how he's lived his life since then. And there are, I mean, thousands of people who have had that. I know other people who have died and had similar, similar experiences so it tells me that there's something out there. Now, whether we want to package it and say it's a certain religion, I can't go there anymore. I've already kind of went down that road. So I'm not going to package it. I just know it's something bigger than me. And it's very loving. And that's what I knew from just being a child on my own. Not from any church, not from any parent. Somehow I had that awareness. I uh, lost one of my kids with drug overdose. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I ask his intervention all the time. Mm-hmm. And I can feel the substance of him. Um, I've, I've, I've told people that on my deathbed, 
I'm going to pretend that I see him and that I'm going there so everybody will feel okay. I'm going to say, there's Tim. I see him. I'm going. But then, but then I know that I really will see him. I'll say, oh, no, what I told you, I'm not kidding. I really do see him. <laughs> Forget what I said. He's Forget, really there. Yeah, right? Exactly. Oh. Well, I want, to tell you, I want to tell you just one story. It has to do with writing. It has to do with my career. Okay. And this is all summoning up so many, so many, one, so many things. And maybe I will never tell this story again. But um, it's a good one. When I was, um, after Bobby Kennedy's death, um, I was still doing documentaries. I got permission from Ethel and Teddy, and Teddy to do the first piece on Bobby Kennedy that was ever done on television called The, the Journey of Robert F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. The Unfinished Journey of Robert F. Kennedy. And I made it into a 90-minute special for NBC, and I actually got to know them all very, very well. Um, making a documentary about a historical figure, particularly a beloved one like Bobby, mm. who was wonderful. You have to be really careful about telling the truth. Well, I had, my imagination was at work. Uh, my creativity was at work. There was a scene of Bobby. He used to give a, a, a party for um, underprivileged children, mm. orphans, at the Justice Department every Christmas. He had a terrible singing voice. Hey, Chuck. And there was a picture of him going, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. That was his singing voice. It, was, it sounded like he was crying. Okay. This piece of film was from before Jack died. And I put it after Jack's death. Mm. And I got busted big time ever taking it out of sequence. It was just too delicious and evocative and tear-jerking. It was so wonderful. I thought I'd get away with it. I didn't. The Mm. Swedish cameraman who took that picture blew the whistle on me that this was out of order. Mel Stewart, um, I was actually the producer of The Journey of Robert F. Kennedy along with Radio, uh, took me to task with it harshly. He said, this is not a time for your fucking imagination. Go write Lassie movies if you want to use your imagination. You don't fuck with a documentary. Um, There it is. It's out on the air. And I said, what's the harm? He said, the harm is you broke the trust of people who believe what they see. Mm. And that's our job. So he's the same man who called me to say, you think you could write a movie? Come. Now, when I got on the set, guess what they were singing, rehearsing? Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure Mm. imagination. Really? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So you are entrusted with this little known story of how my imagination was born. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. And <laughs> wow. You know, how do you take that in when you were that age? Just like, okay, I get it. That's it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything, I mean, I am a blessed person. I was a blessed person. It all came to me so easily. You get an idea and write it down, you see it on the screen. 
Mm. I just thought that was easy. Mm. Uh-huh. <laughs> Not that I didn't work hard. Tell me, after so what I wanted to ask you, what came first? You wrote the screenplay for The Omen and then you did the book? Yeah. Okay. Um, there was only one novelization that I knew of, and that was Eric Siegel's love story. Mm-hmm. And it had come out after the movie. Even though it turns out he had written it before. I didn't know that. Um, uh, was the first novelization of a movie, or so people thought, and it made a fortune. And um, when I went to the set um, and saw the decapitation scene where the journalist um, is bending over the knives and his head gets cut off, this was so early in film, there was, there was no magic beyond setting it up with wire and scotch tape and making it happen. Um, there was, you know, I can't even think of the name of it when he works, um, whatever. Mm-hmm the 3G aspect of it. Um, When I saw the dailies of that, I thought, oh my God, this is going to be a big movie. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go home, beat it to the theaters by writing a novel, which I did. All of the stunts, by the way, were so simplistic. Mm -hmm. There's a scene where it's an electrical storm. The little priest is running away and he looks up at the church and the steeple is hit by lightning and it spears him to the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was a piece of balsa wood on a fishing line. And he stood the, down there going, no, no, as it went behind him into the ground. And that's a memorable moment. It oh cost two cents. I'm telling yeah. you, I, when I saw that, I, I, I think my stomach turned inside out and I didn't want to watch any more of the movie. <laughs> Dick Donner was a, was a goddamn genius. Um, what was the question, sir? I've lost track. Now. Well, the, that, no, it's okay. The, I was asking about which came, you know, did you write the script, oh, yeah, then yeah. the well, book? Then I, did, then I did the book. Yeah. <clears throat> it's not a good book. It sold very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I did it in five weeks, and I beat it into the theaters by at least a month. Mm. It was a summer read, spring read. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sold like, I was getting like 3 million copies. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. It sucks, but the subject was the su- so good. Yeah. And as I read it now, I see the mistakes somebody who didn't know how to write a novel would make. Mm. Um, but the story, the saga, I guess was really gripping. Yeah. Yeah. What, you know, you said things came easy and I'm assuming that's the creativity part that it just flowed and you were able to easily get into the zone. But what about, Getting projects made, getting them greenlit, or before you even go there, what were some of the, were those the hurdles? Were those the difficulties for, you know? There were, the business was very, very different then because everybody was trying to make a prototype first time out. They didn't want to copy somebody else's movie. They didn't want to copy what they, they just did. They didn't want to do something like something else because it was yeah. it was successful. So it amounted to walking into a studio head's office and saying, picture this, blah, 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 and making it, and then you leave it to your agent to make a deal if they like it. If they don't like it, you're going across the street. Wow. So they are, they are pressured. There was no agreement among gentlemen. You got a shot at it. What do you want to, you know? Um, so once you get a bit of a reputation and you have these agents, mm-hmm. 
Um, all of your meetings are set for you. There did come a time in my life, you know, they throw you away at a young age, unless you're one of the anointed few. <clears throat> I had stopped directing um, um, because, as I said, I didn't want to. I didn't want to not be available to to my kid who was in trouble. Mm-hmm. So I was a writer, um, and the movie I did called Shining Through was a big bomb, and um, and it kind of dampened people's appetite to have me direct things. I know one could get over it, but I didn't want to direct anymore anyway. Um, Why so was I got that? old. So I got old and, uh, and wasn't everybody's flavor of the month. And it was harder to get things made. Mm. And the business was such that you had to bring in a package, not just an idea, but mm. an actor and a director and co-financing and whatever the shit it was. And without the team around me, I was on my own. Uh. I still managed to get jobs. I still managed to write things and that were good. So some didn't get made, some did. Um, and I have, I think, I think I've written something that is absolutely the best thing I've ever written. And I think it's about to be made. Oh, great. And, it's, and I turned it from live action to animation, which made it even more interesting. Yeah. Um, so I feel like I still have my chops and, and always did. And the dishonor of thinking that a writer is no good because he got, oh, that's so fucked. Yeah. Because the more you put in here, you know, there is, I was telling you the other day on the phone, there's the deep archive that we all have mm-hmm. of everything we ever experienced. And there comes an age where you get a look into the basement and yeah. see everything without attaching blame to yourself or anybody, the wrongness, the rightness. You get to see a picture of a life. And the picture of your life and all the interaction really makes for something pretty full in your brain. So older writers have so much that the, that the movie business throws away. Mm-hmm. I think part of that is because they think that the older we become, the, the more we become out of touch with, quote, unquote, the audience. But what they forget is that the older we become, we be, we become more in touch with our humanity, and that's the audience. Yeah, that's an audience that's being starved. Yeah, you know the few things that slip through the cracks, <clears throat> they will get mild distribution somewhere. Don't get the push. Yeah, they don't get the push to go out there, except for a few things. And thank goodness there are still a few directors getting a few good things made. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it's become junk food. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and, and I, don't, I don't say that in a way that puts me above them. It's just that the way the world has, in so many ways, devolved. Mm. It's uh, true. Certainly culture has, mm-hmm. popular culture has, very definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, Was it hard for you to make the leap into, act, into directing? Because no, because you completely would... natural, completely natural. Really, and it's easier than writing because when you're writing, if you're writing yourself into a hole, there's nobody to say, "Ah, don't do that, don't do that." Yeah. And when you're directing, if if you are not somebody who has intimidated the people around you, which I think not many directors are anymore, I was somebody who came in 
letting everybody know I needed help. Mm -hmm. And whoever had ideas, I needed them. Mm. So consequently, people weren't able to do their best work because, you know, they blossomed under, oh, he's going to listen to me. Well, as a director, honestly, I was no better than anybody on the set. And um, putting two and two together became a group effort behind the camera. Mm. So I can't say I was an auteur mm -hmm. on any level, um, which was the good part of the things I directed and the bad part of the things I directed, was that I never took time and said, no, my vision is the one. Mm -hmm. I was always adding it. Yeah. And sometimes it would lose focus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I want to ask, there are two things. One, you, you mentioned Shining Through, and I want to go back to that. But before that, you said something about you just wanted to stop directing anyway. Why was that? Well, it was only because um, Shining Through was a really rotten experience for me. Oh. <clears throat> and it was because of, I can name names. Yeah. But there were people in charge who compromised the material so badly, right from the casting mm. to the editing, uh, to the score. And it didn't, something that turned out that could have been, something that could have been wonderful turned out to be a laughingstock. Mm. And, um, and I thought, I think I do better um, maintaining control, that piece that I can control maintaining, and then saying, God bless. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just a brutalizing experience. Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, yeah. I've done a lot of movies that have been ridiculed and they've bombed. And some people are kind enough to forget that. But I did a movie called um, Table for Five with John Voight about a, a divorced father taking his three kids. They were all fashioned after my kids, but I left one of them out because she's, she was physically handicapped and the whole story would have become about her. Mm -hmm. So, and she understood perfectly. Um, but it was a big bomb. Didn't do well at all. I didn't direct it, mm -hmm. by the way. Um, and it wasn't directed well. But it was a huge disappointment to me because it was so autobiographical. Yeah. And it was, at the, it was at the big theater in Westwood. I forget what it was called. There was a parking lot across the street. And maybe a week into it, when it had been thoroughly trashed and no one was going to go, I stood in that parking lot at night and watched. A few people were waiting in line uh, for the next show to start. And a few people came out. A few people went in. And it was very disheartening. And there was a father and a son. It was about a father and mm. his children, particularly his relationship with an adopted Vietnamese son. And they sat on the curb and talked, and the father's arm went around the kid. Oh, my. They could have been talking about anything. But if they were talking about, if it had improved the quality of their communication, even for a night, about their relationship, I thought, okay, this movie was worth making. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for showing that to me. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I can go. Somebody was moved by something. Yeah. Um, so that's always the way I felt. And when movies started um, disappointing in their, in their movie form, mm -hmm. when the scripts had always, I've never written a bad script. Mm -hmm. Only one movie totally exceeded what I wrote, and that was The Owen. Mm. And it was originally supposed to star Charles Bronson. Oh, my. Instead of Gregory Peck. So 
And when Gregory Peck started straight facing his way through those words, I thought, it's like reading the Bible. Everyone's taking it seriously. Yeah. Got a way to Peck, taking it seriously. Ooh, scary. Yeah, very much. Like <laughs> Charles Bronson, I just remember Charles Bronson as the kind of guy that, you know, you don't want to meet in a dark alley. Yeah, he, it, it would have been a very, very different movie. Yeah. And the story would have seemed preposterous. So they all run the risk of seeming preposterous if they're not done right. Yeah. But every, so every time I did a script, I could say, good going, David. Yeah. But that wasn't always the way it was on the set. And there were times directing on a movie that was going wrong mm. when I just felt, I can't tell you how terrible it felt. Yeah. Uh, and I, a couple of temper tantrums that made me look like a fucking little pissy prick. Don't you hate that? Oh, <laughs> I hate my that. temper tantrums. Oh, That's yours? Oh, why? <laughs> well, all, uh, the the I, there's one you, you're reminding me of. One time, I was um, I was on the podium conducting one of my scores for uh, this guy. This was going back, gosh, years ago. And when we talked about it and I played like these demos, this is even before we had really good synths to do great demos. And I wrote something. He goes, you know, it just feels a little marchy right now. And I said, don't worry about it. When we put live strings to this, it's going to sound great. So we record it with the live strings and he's in the booth and he presses the button. He goes, you know, it still feels a little marchy. <laughs> and, um, and I had that that rush of cortisol, you know, <laughs> and your face gets all flushy. You're like, ah, shit. You know? Did you, so give you, him, did you give him shit? No, I didn't give him shit. I just was like, let's figure this out. Let's make yeah. it so that it doesn't feel marchy to you. So, um, so did he have a valid point, do you think? Yes, I think so. <laughs> I think so. I was, I was young uh, as a writer and um, and I think I could look back at it, and I could I would say this is my own self evaluation that I was lazy. That when he first said it to me, I should have dug in with some curiosity instead of going, "Oh, no, no, no! Wait till you hear it with live instruments." And I should have dug in and go, "What's he actually saying here? What does that really mean?" And maybe I would have discovered something. And I didn't. I had to discover it on this podium under the heat of battle. And that's where I discovered it. And I'd much rather discover it. Right yeah, abso <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I can be very defensive about what I write with my wife, who is my best sounding board and oft times collaborator. And I can just blow a fuse at her. I can hold my head and scream. Don't you get it? It can't be that. He can't do that because, and then, and then she says, sure enough. And she vows every time that I come around to her way of thinking, she's never going to talk to me about a script again. Uh -huh. I will come around and say, I think you had a point. Yeah. Yes. I got to tell you, Kristen and I are the same way. She'll sit, like we'll play stuff and she'll say something. And I'd be like, what? What? It don't like it's almost as though can't you just hear it? Right. And right. and and then she'd be like, "Why do we do this? Cuz every time I give you this feedback, you don't want to hear it." I'm like, "No, no, yeah. I really do want to hear it, you know." Yeah, and, I know, same, same, same. And then at the same time I realize, "Oh, she's got a point. There is something yeah. there." Yeah. 
And then yeah. you and he, you go dig in and you're like, ah, oh, you yeah. found something and you would yeah. never have found it if yeah. you didn't go, oh, let me go there. Yeah. So that's yeah. been a really big lesson for me that took probably a couple of years. And now we don't hit it. We don't hit that bump that often because uh, we, we workshop our stuff together. Mm-hmm. So when she's writing something, she'll play it for me. And we've mm-hmm. learned over the years how to communicate the what ifs. Mm-hmm. What if this happened? What if that happened? And we start off with what was your intention? What did you want me to know here? What did you want? What were you going after? Because then I can say, you know what? You did it. I got it. And then if I have something else, I can say, even though you, you did that, what if you did this mm-hmm. as well or something, whatever. It, it mm-hmm. just was... Uh, mm-hmm. I totally can relate to that, you know, uh, steam yeah, coming out of my ears. My, my, she should talk to my wife. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's go back to shining through for a minute. It pains me to hear that it wasn't successful. I really never thought of it as unsuccessful. I look at that movie today as still one of my favorites. And the people that I know think of it as one of their favorites. And I'll never forget the first cut of it was like three hours or something long. And I remember sitting in the screening room going, looking back at Craig and you going, this is amazing. And then the studio got involved and it got, it just lost, it lost it. It lost the character development. It lost the pacing. And it was like, you know, whole scenes taken out. I'm like, what? And, you know, and that's the terrible thing about, about the business of directing, I think, and Mm. maybe you're given the full weight of responsibility of delivering an excellent product and zero authority. Yeah. They take the authority, you keep the responsibility. Mm. You know, it will be your blame no matter how hard you've fought mm-hmm. for the opposite. Wow. But you and I had so much fun. Oh, I, we, we can't, we can't end, not we that did. you're ready to end, but we can't end it without talking about how silly you and I got. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Working <laughs> all night. We were putting in all-nighters. Do you remember the first crank phone can calls? I, can, I, can, can we tell that story about the sure. phone call? Sure. <laughs> So anyway, audience, Joe and I are working till we are totally giddy, uh-huh. slap happy. It's like two, three, four in the morning. We don't know what the hell time it is. Uh-huh. We're just throwing in cues and praying they'll be okay for the mix tomorrow. And uh, I said something, or you said something, I got to pee. I just got to pee. Yeah. I got to pee. So I came back and we started laughing about that. And so we picked up the phone dialed aimlessly in yeah. New York City. The guy says, hello. We say, hey, do you got a pee? <laughs> <laughs> and then we laughed our asses off again. <laughs> and we did that every few minutes. We pick up the phone and ask somebody if they had to urinate. <laughs> That's what happens when you just are so tired. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it's like the silliest thing seems to be the hilarious thing to you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, this is still hilarious that two grown men were making crank calls asking people if they have to pee. If in they the have to pee in the middle of the night to New Yorkers. Hello? 
Hey, uh, do you got to pee? <laughs> I bet a lot of people got up and peed after they heard I wonder, right? You know, as a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, David, I, I, just spending time with you is an honor and a treat. It's, you know, we, we were every now and again getting together for lunch or something. And, um, but it's just really great to just spend this time with you. Thank you yeah, for saying thank yes. Thank you. My, my honor. Thank you so much. Yeah. We will do that lunch. And when the alarm clock, clock goes off at uh, 2 a.m. or the phone rings. <laughs> Call me. Go ahead. It'll, it'll be. <laughs> All right. I promise this. I won't do it to you. Okay. Thank you. Because I do it in bed now. I'm in one It's so funny. So I remember when I was younger. Right, one more thing. I remember when I was younger and my mom was getting older and, you know, she was always like, I can't sleep. I just got to get up and pee. And I'm like, how is that even humanly possible? Like, because like <laughs> you're a young kid, you just sleep through the night, you know, it's just like, ah. And I'm telling you, now, as I got older, it's like, you just wake up, got to go pee, like sometimes yeah, twice yeah, in the night. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's like, Some old guy said to me, I have to urinate every six to seven minutes, and most of the time I don't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right, David. So we, end, we end on the Alta Cocker jokes. Joe, thank you so much. I love you dearly. Oh, thank you, my David. My love to Kristen. Thank you. I love you too. My love to Carrie. And when this is all over, we all four of us need to have some wine and you hang out. Bet. Yeah. You bet. All right, my friend. Thank you so much. Take care. All right. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. So I know this is where I would usually go amazing, right? And it is amazing. What a journey. What an ability to take all of all of our experiences, you know, all David takes all of his experiences and has been able to find a way to create stories that we all can relate to. And you know, he talks about going to Vietnam and how it informed his life in many levels. And I would say that we all have experiences in our life that informs us. And being able to, to touch that place as a source of our creativity, I, I believe is where, how do I want to say it in such a cliche way? That's where the gold is? I just, maybe I should say it, that's where the truth is. Okay, next week is music editor Sally Bolt. You know that movie, Soul, that just came out? She was the one who pulled all that music together. I can't wait to share her story with you. In the meantime, stay safe and remember, if he's doing it, why not you? Why not you?